back we sometimes do obituaries in this part of the program the top of the third segment i think we'll do one today noting the passing of joe mcginnis although his new york times obituary noted that he wrote fatal vision which was his most controversial work i will always think of joe mcginnis as the author of the selling of the president 1968 mcginnis was 26 years old back in 1969 and a columnist for the philadelphia inquiry when he published that book it was about the image makers working behind the scenes for Richard Nixon's successful 1968 campaign. The book portrayed the Nixon team in an unflattering, cynical light and sent signals to candidates of all stripes about the hazards of granting reporters intimate access to political decision-making. Now, the more famous book they mentioned, Fatal Vision, came out in 1983. It focused on the murder trial of Jeffrey McDonald, an Army doctor and Green Beret, accused of killing his pregnant wife and two daughters. McGinnis lived with McDonald's defense team during the trial and eventually decided the jury's guilty verdict was correct. Now, we spoke with famous coroner Dr. Cyril Wecht about uh, a book he did on famous cases, and Dr. Wecht does not agree with that uh, verdict against Jeffrey McDonald. Interestingly, Dr. McDonald would later sue Joe McGinnis, saying that he cooperated because he thought the book would portray him sympathetically. McDonald won, and he got $325,000 in an out-of-court settlement. But I think far bigger waves took place in our political system in the wake of the selling of the president in 1968. In contrast to the respectful Making of the President campaign series by historian Theodore H. White, the selling of the president was just a redolent of iconoclasm, said the New York Times, and also the counterculture attitudes prevalent among Mr. McGinnis's generation of reporters. For many... The book was a revelation. It became a mammoth bestseller and a landmark of political reporting. It introduced the reading public to a tenet that's pretty much rudimentary knowledge today. Political campaigns are driven by manipulative intent. Personally, I would agree that the selling of the president in 1968 is a milestone of political reporting, if for no other reason than it educated this correspondent about a wily character known as Roger Ailes. Ailes was hired by Nixon to shape his image, and he's been with the Republicans shaping images ever since, and most recently works for Rupert Murdoch, putting out the um, fictional news network known as Fox. We have not read Gabriel Sherman's new book about Roger Ailes, The Loudest Voice in the Room, How the Brilliant Bombastic Roger Ailes Built Fox News and Divided the Country, but we may. Curious to note a piece in the Washington Post about that book that notes that uh, Gabriel Sherman's scathing news study of the controversial Fox News chief makes the point that the only worthwhile biography of Roger Ailes is an unauthorized one. A Fox publicist refused to let the first-time author talk to Ailes unless he agreed that the book would include no reporting that made its subject look bad. Instead of accepting that condition, Gabriel Sherman... New York Magazine media writer interviewed people around Ailes, 614 of them, and came back with a portrait of a manipulating, conniving, controlling, petty, and fear-mongering man. In a related story, we would uh, have to give a grudging nod to the notorious Glenn Beck for noting that a few weeks back, uh, Glenn Beck, reflecting on his time as an incendiary Fox News host, confessed, quote, I think I played a role unfortunately, in helping tear this country apart, unquote. 
Writing in the New York Times, Charles Bowes said, uh, that's actually an understatement. Beck's greatest hits list includes describing President Obama as a racist and a Marxist with a deep-seated hatred for white people. Noted Bo, Beck called the largely black victims of Hurricane Katrina scumbags who just wanted taxpayer handouts. His feverish conspiracy theories and relentless racially tinged attacks didn't just rile people up, they outrightly misinformed them. Bo cites a 2012 poll which found that people who listened to no news were better informed than those who listened to Fox News. He noted that in an era of infotainment, Pundits don't become rich and famous by dealing in nuance and complexity. Instead, they need to rile up their audiences with a smelly chum of hyperbole and invective. Beck's apology comes very late, but at least he's now admitting to his fans, and fans of any professional provocateur on the right or left, that they're being hustled. Boy, and speaking of misinforming the public... uh, saw a little piece by Ezra Klein from Bloomberg.com, which certainly does that which I want to comment on, said Mr. Klein, liberals who long for a government-run single-payer health care system can't wait to get rid of insurance companies. But it's not insurers who are driving up the cost of health care in this country. It's doctors, hospitals, and drug companies. Just look at the bottom line. Health insurance is rated by Forbes as the country's 35th most profitable industry. Pharmaceutical and medical device manufacturers, meanwhile, saw returns of between 16 and 20 percent. By the way, I don't think I have an issue with Mr. Klein about drug companies. But when he notes, doctors are more likely than any other profession to have incomes in the top 1%, I think he is smoking crack. Does he really think doctors are doing better than hedge fund managers or Wall Street bond people? I don't think so. I got a call, and it wasn't that many years back, from a locum's company. Interested in seeing whether I would still like to do some some of that sort of work, which, which I was not interested in. But I... In turning them down, asked them, just out of curiosity, what are you guys paying per hour? And the answer came back, $55 an hour. Now, I'll grant you, that's a lot better than minimum wage. But it is less than I pay my auto mechanic and plumber. Nevertheless, Ezra Klein, not knowing what he's talking about, says that in the U.S., healthcare providers have too much power and insurers have little leverage over costs. <laughs> no, no. The insurance companies are sitting between you my dear listener, the patient, and the healthcare practitioner. They're the ones that are saying, you pay us X amount and we will forward it down the line. Don't worry, we got this covered. If health insurance really is ranked by Forbes as the country's 35th most profitable industry, I bet it's because they're paying their CEOs so much. And speaking of mistakes in healthcare, we should talk a little bit about digital medical records, also known as electronic health records. A lot of people out there claim this is going to shake up healthcare and make it better. Well, it has not. To quote from the February 10th issue of Medical Economics, despite the government's bribe of nearly $27 billion to digitize patient records, nearly 70% of physicians say electronic health record EHR systems have not been worth it. It's a sobering statistic backed by newly released data from marketing and research firm MPI Group, also the magazine publishing this, Medical Economics. It suggests that two-thirds of doctors would not purchase their current EHR system again because of poor functionality and high costs. 
The piece notes that in a surprise finding, nearly 45% of physicians from the national survey report spending more than $100,000 on an EHR. 77% of the largest practices spent nearly $200,000 on their system. And while physicians can receive $44,000 through the Medicare EHR Meaningful Use Incentive Program and $63,000 through Medicaid's MU Program, some physicians say it's not nearly enough to cover the increased costs of implementation, training, annual licensing fees, hardware, and associated services. So what's really going on here? Well, there was a piece by Julie Criswell in the New York Times from February of last year I've been sitting on. The headline tells it all. Digital medical records boon to big firms' health. Oh, by big firms, they're referring to the people that were supplying these electronic health records. To quote briefly from that piece, it was a tantalizing pitch. Come get a piece of a $19 billion government giveaway. The approach came in 2009 in a a presentation to doctors by Allscripts Healthcare Solutions of Chicago, a well-connected player in the lucrative business of digital medical records. That February, after years of behind-the-scenes lobbying by Allscripts and others, legislation to promote the use of electronic records was signed into law as part of President Barack Obama's economic stimulus bill. The rewards, Allscripts suggested, were at hand. But today, as doctors and hospitals struggle to make new record systems work, the clear winners are big companies like Allscripts that lobbied for that legislation and then pushed aside smaller competitors. This year, an article in New Scientist talks about how the National Health Service in Britain is planning to move all the uh, medical records in the country to a central data bank and how everybody's finding this to be worrisome. We will continue to follow all of this. All right, final item today. I want to note that I did get a chance over the weekend to go visit the Jack London State Park in Glen Ellen, something I've driven by for 40 years. It was well worth it. I got to walk around with one of the docents who was testing out a new app uh, to explain uh, the scenes as one, one walks in the park. I suggest, dear listener, that you do check out this state park if you've not done so. But I would add, do watch out for the rattlesnakes in the trail. While walking up to the cottage where Jack London did a lot of his writing, I heard the uh, unmistakable sound of a rattler and looked down to see one coiled and ready to strike. He was only about 18 inches long and was probably more afraid of me than I was of him. So the interaction worked out without any mayhem. But the final item for the show was something I mentioned to the docent. was a great quote from The Sea Wolf by Jack London, one that Mr. McMillan is very fond of. Because in pointing out that the character in the book was praising Satan, I said, you know, Satan really doesn't have a very good press. So praising him is kind of a notable bit of literature. So I think I will close the program with this quote from Wolf Larsen, the captain of the ghost, and really the title character of The Sea Wolf. Said Larson, he led a lost cause and he was not afraid of God's thunderbolts. Hurled into hell, he was unbeaten. A third of God's angels he led with him, and straightaway he incited man to rebel against God and gain for himself and hell the major portion of all the generations of man. Why was he beaten out of heaven? Because he was less brave than God? Less proud? Less aspiring? No. A thousand times no. God was more powerful. As he said, whom thunder hath made greater. But Lucifer was a free spirit. To serve was to suffocate. He preferred suffering and freedom to all the happiness of a comfortable servility. He did not care to serve God. He cared to serve nothing.
He was no figurehead. He stood on his own legs. He was an individual. We would close, of course, by noting that the opinion that Satan wasn't such a bad guy does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. No, that's that's just Wolf Larson talking. Anyway, this program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to Dr. Vladimir Donetz. And we want to note, happy birthday earlier this week to our good pal, Mr. Will Durst. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul and faith. I was around when Jesus Christ had his moment of doubt and pain. Made damn sure the pilot washed his hands and sealed his face. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guessed my name. But what's puzzling you is the nature of my game. Stuck around St. Petersburg. When I saw it was a time for change